0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend and neighbor, um, Dr. Joe Kramer. Dr. Kramer is an active Latter-day Saint. Um, We've been in the same neighborhood, the same ward, for 20 years. He's lived in his home for 30 years. Um, He is a doctor, um, pediatrician. He um, started his practice in a roughly 1983, practiced for 34, 35 years until 27, was the pediatrician for our children, was our go-to guy on many days when we were concerned about our child, and Joe was there. Joe has blessed our family immensely and hundreds and hundreds of families. Um, Joe is a past president of the Utah Medical Association, Roughly from about 1998 to 1999, um, earned his medical degree from the University of, Ju- uh, of Arizona, and then did a residency at Duke in pediatrics. Um, Joe is not going to talk too much about being a pediatrician, but we're going to, we, that may come up, and he has obviously great insights there of 30 plus years. We're going to talk about Joe's um, journey with suicide. Um, We don't talk um, in the medical community, and I'm not part of that community, very often about physicians that become suicidal. And Joe has been suicidal. He's been diagnosed with major depressive disorder and um, became pretty suicidal about 10 years ago. He's out of that space and doing better. Um, But in some medical journals, as other physicians have talked about their own suicide, Joe has opened up with his journey as a way to lead people out of that wilderness. And um, he's going to read a response um, that he wrote about his own journey with suicide. So that will be the kind of the first part of the podcast is Joe bravely sharing about his own suicide feelings and what he's learned and why he didn't choose that. And then his advice to all of us. So if you're thinking of suicide or um, having thoughts of suicide, I think Joe will be helpful if you are trying to help others that have thoughts of suicide, Joe will have insights for you. Um, Joe and I started with a prayer, and we just pray that this sensitive subject that needs to be talked about, that really courageous men like Joe um, that are able to talk about in his own life will help all of us. One of my favorite quotes, you listeners have heard this quite a bit, it's the wounded healer. Henry Noren wrote, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of the desert by someone who's never been there. So with kind of tears in my eyes, because I love this man across the table, he knows the desert of mental illness and and writing plans to die by suicide, and he's been able to walk out of that desert. and. Um, and he's talking about it so that others that are in that desert, he can authentically lead them out because he knows that desert. Joe, anything I've said from your biographic um, overview that is incorrect, you need to correct.
1: No, uh, I do like to add that I played basketball at Duke. Um, <laughs> it was Saturday morning during my residency. But
0: and you, I believe you, Joe, <laughs> and Joe was running a few marathons and half marathons. So Joe. And I may have mentioned Joe's the father of five kids, his wonderful wife, um, Janet, who is awesome, 13 grandkids. So it's just a wonderful family that's given so much to our community. But talk about these uh, medical publications where people started to write about feelings of suicide and then you sharing your story. Certainly. It, uh, it began in
1: 1998, uh, 1999, when I had the opportunity and privilege to be the president of the State Medical Association. Um, In that capacity, we were uh, invited uh, to write a monthly message uh, to the troops, if you will. Um, And at that time, I came out of the shadows of depression and said, look, this is something that if we can't as physicians talk about it, then how are we supposed to be healers of those who suffer from such ailments? And in response to that, I received several emails from individuals who had themselves Uh, been treated or been diagnosed or uh, had been considered with depression, and um, they were just grateful that now they also could come out a little bit and and share their experiences with someone else who um, was able to do it. Uh, Probably one of the more uh, salient and and powerful messages was uh, when I received a letter from a physician who is in an isolated part of the state who had contemplated suicide himself with plans and time and method, uh, all set aside. And he was just waiting for some, um, insurance to mature or some such thing. And, and he said a letter of, of appreciation, um, that by reading my own letter and, and message was able to, uh, seek help and, and, uh, was able to get, uh, Proper care and therapy, and and he uh, had some improvement with that. But then the the follow up was in um, June and July issue of the uh, Utah Physician, which is the the organ of communication for the Utah Medical Association. A medical student wrote a lengthy epistle about uh, his own experience with suicide and how he had planned to do it. Uh, his method uh, probably is not. Uh, Important, but that he had in the process discovered his illness, had sought help, and he was improving. And yet he noted at the bottom that he was not able to communicate this in public, but remained anonymous um, because of this. Um, with that um, came the incentive for me to write an additional um, article as a follow-up uh, without being anonymous. The, the idea being is that if people could attach a name and a person to this, then perhaps there could be some uh, perhaps better understanding or acceptance or realization how real uh, suicide is. And so this is the uh, text of the article I wrote that appeared in the Utah Physician.
0: So this is going to be your story, right? This, now. Is,
1: this is my story. So thank you for sharing. Again, this is addressed to the medical student. Thank you for sharing. You're brave to do so. But you're not alone. It's a similar tale with many in medicine. Years ago, as president of the Utah Medical Association, I wrote a monthly missive to the troops. In one, I fled the shadows of depression. Reasoning was to start healers to speak to one another about the ailments of the mind. In silence, we missed the opportunity to grow hearts of compassion. In those days, the profession treated the genetics and the environmental flaws of the heart, but we struggled to address the genetic and environmental flaws of the brain. Harder yet was to confront the poisons of the medical system. Except for psychiatrists, our paid friends, Physicians oftentimes didn't recognize our own emotional shortcomings. Liberated from this personal stigma of, of my major depressive disorder, MDD, I felt free. With freedom came a duty to my patients and my parents and my practice to, op- to talk openly about my professional knowledge and personal experience. There was no badge of courage nor a men- medal of shame I just admitted openly because parents and patients may have a similar mental ailment. The thinking was that uh, if I spoke the words out loud, neighbors, friends, and families would not be as afraid to say them softly to a physician or a counselor. My mantra became I get it, I got the t shirt dads were especially targets of my concern, not wanting them to repeat my struggles. Routine screening missed the signs and and symptoms of routine male depression. And these are my, this is an addendum in the sense that these are my personal opinions. The the personal health questionnaire, PHQ-9, um, which is often used to diagnose depression, has no question on it about anger or aggression or irritability which are common in men and sometimes more common than the general sadness that we often speak about with uh, female depression. Instead, with the father in the exam room describing depression to their child, they volunteered, oh, that's the way I have felt my whole life. Anger management should be depressive management. The responses to my presidential message were from physicians I knew and respected. Finally, they were able to share their own story of depression with a fellow sufferer. As I mentioned, a doc in rural Utah was all set to end his life, and he had a plan. And once he had read my published acknowledgment, he sought improvement, both in words and counseling and a pharmaceutical um, therapy as well. Being in such depths of misery makes one aware that suicide is easier than one had ever imagined. It was in medical school um, that I went from being shocked that anyone could kill themselves to understanding how possible that was when one of my classmates murdered himself. In the pits of my own diagnosis of MDD, I wanted to leave this world without bothering anybody. It is the ultimate paradox of selfishness. I knew where the medical examiner's office was and with a large asphalt parking area. To avoid the hassle of transporting my body, um, that was going to be my stage. A robe, my only costume. I didn't want them to be hassled with shoes or socks. Not liking the effects of pills, a bullet to the heart seemed easiest. I hated the thought of blowing up my brains because I had worked so hard to educate them. A tarp to collect the blood and parts figured into the plot. Carbon monoxide was less messy. However, not being much of a proceduralist, it was to do-it-yourself uh, DIY, requiring pipes and packing and duct tape. And besides, my hybrid card would probably turn off and go electric. I was proud of myself for being so considerate of the medical examiner, all the while being ignorant of anybody else. Crazy goes along with the diagnosis of mental depression. As for doctors, their opinions can... You ask four doctors and you get seven opinions. Consequently, what follows may not apply to every physician, but child development therapy may describe the allure of medicine to some at the future for depression um, who are susceptible or have a higher risk for depression and anxiety. It is beyond the pat answers of I like science and I want to help others. Many of us have emotional needs born out of our childhood, childhood upbringing. Independent thinkers and doers like us love being called a doctor. This trait is the need to be the best to fill in the craters of insecurity. Asking for help isn't an anthem. Anyone will know that we. Everyone will know if we ask for help that we don't know what we're doing. We often have this imposter complex. This is knowing any moment. And I'm thinking in pediatrics that some obnoxious five-year-old kid is going to jump off the table, an exam table, after getting his kindergarten shots without a whimper, run over to the nursing station, pull back the curtain, and shout to everybody in the office, Dr. is a fraud. He's not a wizard. And I would have to have agreed with him. To compensate, we're the boss. We don't delegate well. We avoid intimacy. It isn't the professional gap between doctor and patient. It is an emotional isolation. It is both instinctive and protective. We are alone in a crowd. We we detest confrontation, often escaping. There is no problem too great from which we can't run. Marriages falter. Acting out the fully recognized elements of burnout makes everything worse. For some, money and mansions are the backfills that we use to s- seal the deep holes in our emotional souls. Sadly, these are inadequate plugs. Dr. Burnout is the exhaustion of digging holes of self-doubt and trying to fill them in with all our medical manage Magic. No matter how hard we work, it's not good enough. There are still holes, and we keep digging. Asking physicians to tell their secret stories from childhood, the narrative is often a tale of parental absence or personal isolation. There's no caring figure in our emotional recall, and an example is not wanting to impose on anyone, anyway. just like we don't want to bother our own parents for their attention or affections. These feelings of isolation are to our advantage as we power through the obstacles be, to become a physician. We are competitive. We are self-driven. These attributes are necessary to be at the top. But only at the top does one get gets the only at the top does one get into the system. Further, the flip side of the depressive trait is anxiousness. We care, having compassion for our patients but we ignore that we can care too much about our failures and our humanness. Both types of caring are upregulation of intelligence and sympathetic energy. Unfortunately, with excessive energy becomes toxic, we never get calmed. Unfortunately, suicide is an occupational hazard of medicine. Unfortunately, my new friend with our story... Of self-awareness, and this time I'm talking to the medical student, The talking about self-awareness and your healing, the number will shrink. Our combined message is for anyone with a plan to get help. Talk to your fellow students. Talk to your mentors. Get a paid friend. The medical examiner asphalt parking lot with a gun to the heart is taken. The thing about depression and suicide is that it's treatable. It's not a personal failure any more than a paper cut or stub toe. To you, the medical student, and uh, your colleagues with a plan of dying, thank you for changing it into a plan of healing.
0: It's really well written, Joe. Thank you. Um, I think a lot of our listeners have tears in their eyes for your courage to write that and talk about your own journey. Um, So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, And I want to give Joe's contact information out a couple times. So if you wanted to email Joe, he'd send you a copy of that. Uh, He's glad to interact with you, especially those of you um, that may be suicidal. Why don't you just go ahead and give them your email address, Joe? It's
1: J.G. Kramer, with a C, C C-R-A-M-E-R, M-D, at yahoo.com, Kramer M-D, at yahoo.com
0: talk about um, this you, I think I mentioned this before we started. and I may have mentioned your age, your late 60s, so just for context, this the worst of this was about 10 years ago. Can mm-hmm. you walk our listeners through and maybe that letter shared a bit of that. Just what what was kind of the cumulative, was it accumulation of your tw- this is 20 year, you're your 25 years into your career roughly. Is this a cumulative effect of 25 years or is this a very acute um, six months where you were fine and then went to the space? You know, I, in
1: looking back on it, um, there were times as a, as a youth that I remember um, as a teenager, I'm assuming in the age, is that I had seen one of these public service announcements on TV and they had these people talking about depression. And I told my mother, that sounds like me. This is me. And she... As a teenager. As a teenager. And so she denied it. And I remember running outside outside, crying um, that she didn't believe me. Um, and again, that's not a, an accusation against my mother. It's, other than she was one who was born in poverty, um, If anyone knows where Scipio, Utah, I don't know if I need to say anything more about that, but dirt farmers, droughts. um, And she was the oldest of her, her siblings after her sister went off to college. And so her love language became something that I didn't recognize until even last year, that she would come and work. And that became how she showed her love but it was not hugging. She would say, even as a teenager to me, uh, I can't tell you how much I love you. Now I don't have that conversation with my brother um, because I think he was reared in a different home in the different timing, et cetera. My father was ill um, with heart disease. It was my task to, to say, you know, where's father. And that meant you go check to see if he's still alive those sort of things. He passed away while I was on my mission in Bolivia. Uh, And so there really was not a a connection there or a a closure. Although I think to this audience I can share, which I typically don't do, um, is that the one dream I remember is um, my, uh, it was on a Friday night and as best I can recall, and I walked into this large warehouse. Uh, it was dark everywhere except for this one light shown from the ceiling that had the, you know, the, the dust and various other things you see often uh, in, in sunlight or in, in this case in lamplight. And um, there was a coffin uh, covered by an American flag. And my father had been a veteran of 20 years in the army. And, and so, uh, but there was a reassurance with it. I mean, there was no words, but I can still remember coming in from the upper side and uh, where the head was, where the flag, uh, stars are on the flag and then walking around and just felt comfortable. And it was the night that he passed away in Phoenix, um, And so that's always been a message to me that um, I'm loved by someone. And yet there is this um, same time, this, this feeling of not wanting to bother anybody. What happens in children is that if there is this neglect that I can't tell you sort of moments, the child then learns to, to approach the parent with some hesitation. So it's always, well, I'm sorry. I don't mean to bother you. you know, excuse me. Um, you know, we're people pleaser sort of things which are great if you want to go into medicine. Um, but it also says, uh, I'm going to kill myself in the parking lot of the medical examiner so he won't be bothered. Uh, I won't have to excuse, you know, I won't have to say I'm sorry to him. And the odd thing about that, I mean, I look, I look back on and say, Whoa, that's weird. But I look, but, um, but I was more concerned about him than myself or my family. And it's just an odd sort of feeling. But, um, so what led up to this, I think in many ways is and often occurs in people who have depression that they'll go off their medicines. I had been on a variety of medicines and so forth. So I went off and it was the worst time. I did it in uh, around Christmas, um, which I don't recommend you do. Um, and then March, um, which is also a bad time. Something about the Equinox makes a difference. Seasonal affect disorder um, uh, makes a difference as you switch to, um, to, uh, regular, if you go from daylight savings to regular, there's an I- increase in, in depression and and so forth. So there's a lot of things that were going on in my life that, um, made me more susceptible to it. Uh, crisis at, um, uh, at work and, and various other things. And so, uh, that was my escape. Um, but the, the thing that stopped me was to realize that I didn't want my kids to have a father who committed suicide. I didn't want my kids to have this as a model for when they got into trouble. That that's how they escaped. And so it was. It's a, it's a realization that it's the disease that's doing the talking. Um, we talk about self-talk, the language we say to ourselves. Um, and it's, there are those who, uh, the school of, of thought is that the, the thoughts create the feelings, not the feelings create the thought. And so as you think about these things, then that the body just reinforces those thoughts. And so knowing that this is the disease and it's not really me, it's not real, uh, and that it's just simply neurons firing in my brain um, gives me that reassurance that I don't have to do this. Now, people say everybody has a choice, and it's and I I believe that too. I, I believe that on paper, um, but sometimes you don't realize you have a choice. And so, when we talk about agency, there's two aspects to it. One is a to you know you have a choice in that circumstance. And second is the choice you then make with that knowledge. Um, and so, you know, when we're told in holy places to awake and arise, is we need to awake to our emotional state. We need to be aware that um, this is not normal. In that, um, it's crazy. Now, what I mean by that is I'm not being derogatory to anybody with depression. Heavens no. I mean, I, you know, um, the reason why I talk about these things is to tell people, hey, I get it. Um, You know, I'm this, I'm in with you. Uh, I understand. Um, And I, and I'm, not only do I try to sympathize, but truly try to empathize to say, um, I know how you feel. Um, and if people could understand that there are alternatives, and I believe that you look at your soul much like cottage or Swiss cheese, you have all these holes and the holes are based upon a lot of things. My holes were, I never thought I was smart enough. Um, you know, I only knew I was smart enough to know I wasn't very smart. And I had a brother who, um, Remains my hero in so many ways, such an incredible uh, man and incredible brother. Um, But I was never as smart as he was. And so I was never as smart or I, I was never as athletic or never, you know, you go through your own list of these deficiencies and these holes, then you, you fill them up with a variety of ways, uh, accomplishments, uh, in medicine, it's, you know, the number of papers you write or your position or title or, but when you get to the top and the pinnacle and you look around from the mountaintop and you go, is that all there is? Because the underlying insecurity is still there that drives you to that success, but it's not healing. And I think, and I do believe with all my heart that it has to be a spiritual healing, that you have to fill in that gap and the gaps that we have with an understanding that there is a God that loves us uh, and that he is real um, and that he talks to us um, and in my case, uh, he shows us dreams. And so... The angels that are about us are, are true. I was in one of these depths of, you know, nobody likes me, I'm going to go eat worms sort of thing. And at 10.30 at night, uh, as almost as I was saying, I have no friends, uh, a man by the name of Danny Oswald called up 10.30 at night and said, can I come over and play ping pong? Who plays ping pong at 10.30 at night?
0: That's cool.
1: But he was there and and even with those memories, I have to keep coming back to him because the other memories of I'm not smart enough and not rich enough and not good looking and I'm not as good looking as as, uh, as Dick Osler. And so this is the this is really being the bane of my existence, <laughs> you know, as a neighbor. He's so good looking, his kids are so accomplished, his wife is so wonderful. You know, he may say I help him, but he's fed me on so many occasions with the missionary farewells. So I think I think we're fair, we're we're even in our in our gifts to each other. Um, I you know I give you my email. I can give you my phone if that's helpful to say. Look, you're not alone. There are alternatives. Uh, there are answers. And that includes suicide, but that's the precursor, which is the major depression or anxiety, which is now viewed pretty much as the same disorder. Um, and, you know, when the brother and others say, you know, you cannot go low enough that you can't be reached by the arm of love. Uh, I believe that. Um, no matter how low you go. Uh, there is forgiveness. There is eternal love. There is uh, a feeling that you have worth, um, and it means you have to repent. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you get in this mood because you're you're doing naughty things, and those things need to be stopped, um, and then you can be in a better position of listening because you're not having all these other words yelled into your mouth and, excuse me, into your ears. I am a doctor. I know the difference between ears and mouth. (laughs) Um,
0: And um, anyway, it's very helpful. Talk about, was this five years you were thinking about the medical examiner lot um, and had this plan? Was it one year? Was it 10 years?
1: It was mostly one year, one year. Um, Depression is much like cancer. You have relapses and you have remissions. Um, You know, people who can be free of cancer for years and years and years. And all of a sudden it reappears, unfortunately. And the same way it can be with uh, depression. Um, I'm not going to stop my medicines ever again. Um, I'm going to be more active during the winter time. I'm going to be uh, more caring and loving to people around me. I'm going to, um, get out of the funk of loneliness. Um, there's a book that, and it was on uh, TED Talks, about how loneliness is the driving force of a lot of our depression. And if we can use the tools of family and friends, quorums, classes, etc., cetera, then I think we can help break out of that, that isolation that often prompts one because, um, you you, you usually don't do suicide in a crowd. Um, you know, we hear these sick moments where someone prompts or taunts their friend or whatever to hurt themselves. And, but, uh, it's a decision that one individual ends up
0: making. Did you have your diagnosis of major depressive disorder before Um, this period of um, suicide, or was it after?
1: No, it was, uh, it had actually been, oh, goodness. Um, We arrived in the valley in 1981 uh, from residency, and it's one of those days, um, you know, the slogan at Duke was, if you don't get your work done in 24 hours, just get up a little bit earlier. (laughs) Um, And it didn't have any restrictions, and so you would be, you know, 170 to 80, 100 hours a week sort of thing. And so it was an insensitive surrounding. And I think medicine now has instilled these work limits, but I don't think they've instilled them with a compassion. It's like, okay, here's a law and you can't do this because you may be sleeping, fall asleep on the way home. In reality is that we want to have compassion for you students and residents, but that's another issue. But um, I I was diagnosed in '90, I believe. Uh, I had the opportunity to be on the board of trustees of Intermountain Medical or Intermountain Healthcare for about four years, and about that time that it was diagnosed. But I was depressed beforehand, and again, you come back to male depression, and it is um, irritability, um, it's anger, uh, and you definitely uh, blame others. With these holes in our souls, um, it's hard to accept the fact that it's our fault. There's a weakness and an insecurity that is that propagates this whole idea of depression and anxiety. And so I was blaming my spouse and, and various other things for the issues, and it wasn't her at all. Um, but um, so... As I sought treatment, um, I know the first day I went uh, to the therapist, it was it was an embarrassing moment. You know, it was here is this failure. Here is this guy that uh, couldn't get his act together. You know, here is his brother so successful, and you know I was a nobody kind of thing. And then once the medicine kicked in and the conversations became uh, helpful, you began to realize, no, I was. I was the healthy one. I was the one that was seeking help, and I was getting better. It's those ones that continue to deny it that you worry about, um, that they don't realize that there is a help out there. And with males particularly, because anger and irritability is often a feature of it, um, it's almost empowering. And so you don't feel this weakness and inadequacy as much as you're just dang mad, and the adrenaline just makes you that much more powerful, Um,
0: et cetera. So anyway. Um, It's interesting. A couple things as you're sharing your story, Joe, is the loneliness you feel because I think all of us around you, if I worked in your office and you talk about you're not physically lonely in the sense there's people, you're serving patients, but you're this lo- the loneliness of not being able to talk about how you feel and have sort of people in your foxhole or safe places to process where you are and and being the doc and the really six suc- you kind of put yourself on a lower pedestal than I would ever put you. And I think everybody else would because if I mean, you're a physician, you're Um, top-notch pediatric physician in the Valley. And we were, and as many other families that I know, we're so glad to have you as their physician. We have you on a pretty high pedestal, but you don't. No. And it's sort of like if you knew all these holes about me, you wouldn't feel this way about me. Right. And you're talking about those holes, and my respect for you only increases. That's one of the ironic things about as we're vulnerable. And as you share this letter, I... I mean, I love you more. I have more respect for you. I recognize the road you've been on and your ability through writing to heal people physically through your medical career, but also to heal people with emotional challenges and give them hope because you're able to talk about this stuff. And that's that's a beautiful part of your ministry, Joe. Well, thank you.
1: It was the eight years that I wrote for the Uh, Desert Desert News. News. I love those articles. And I would have people write, and I remember what writing about loneliness, and one person said, you know, you, excuse me, that you described it, that she was able to understand that her loneliness had words and had others feeling it and, and the like. The... The thing about asking scary stories from childhood, the brain will pull out what we call as a mental model. And so my story is I was about six and I was in this garden shed, uh, you know, with lawnmowers and things. And I remember being totally black and I was terrifying. And But I don't know how I got in and I don't know how I got out, but I remember being by myself. So that becomes my mental model that in times of stress, I'm alone. And one has to overcome that because that is uh, more ingrained. It's more intuitive. Um, It's the first thing that happens because in fear, you don't sit and think about it. It's, you know, here's a bear. I don't worry if it's a brown bear, black bear, or blue bear. I just, I want to get out of there. So it's very fast. Not specific, so if it looks like problems, it is a problem. Um, and again, you have this fleeing and uh, freezing. And so I would often freeze um, or flee. Uh, and so when we would have a conversation or some task that Janet would, my wife would want me to do, I would often back away and say, "Okay, I'll I'll do that tomorrow." Um, which really meant that I probably won't do it at all. Um, But there's that escape mechanism, and suicide is the ultimate escape. Um, And again, remember that it is brain cells firing, and it's not you. It's not the spirit. It is not the soul, which is the spirit and body. It is simply the body misfiring, and it's not real. It seems real, it feels real, but it's not. And and having that conversation with yourself to say, the thoughts create the feelings that need to change the thoughts. And you are supplied with new thoughts as you read, healthy literature, as you listen to um, healthy music, scriptures, that fills your vocabulary and your lexicon with new words that can be, that will supplant the words that you often
0: say to yourself that are more self-critical. You had a really good nugget in there. A lot of good nuggets our listeners are picking up, but one you picked up is, and you love your mom, but when you first opened up to your mom about your own feelings that you may not have had vocabulary for you, um, she just didn't have the tools to sort of validate. It was sort of like, well, Joe, tell me more. And I'm really grateful that you opened up to how you feel. It's important that you'll be able to share with me what's going on in your life. And she just didn't have those tools. Um, And I love then that then you talked about how that created a defensiveness or a kind of needing to assess the situation. And I think as parents, um, if we can do that, we can create, if we can create safety so our children feel safe opening up, even though we may not know the answers, um, if they just feel safe, that was really helpful. Um, I'm going to make a statement and you tell me if you agree with this. I've always The more I've learned about mental illness, I've learned it's not a spiritual deficit or a spiritual weakness, and it can't be fixed by increased spiritual behavior. Um, It's like pancreatic, or that isn't even a disease, you know, pink, what is that disease called? Pancre. Pancretinus. That's it. Or just some, you're smiling now. How about Acne. Acne.
1: Obviously, I can't solve... (laughs) I'm a pediatrician, diaper rash.
0: Diaper rash. I can't solve that by increased righteous behavior. Um, I I think sometimes culturally we dismiss mental illness or feelings of anxiety and stress a little bit, or we just kind of say, get over it, or sometimes maybe even incorrectly think we can solve this through the atonement or through prayer, and I... I don't want to discount that because the atonement or prayer in particular could help um, through God's priesthood power of physical illness be healed. But I think we have to address this like you did by going to your paid friend and getting the right kind of help to solve this and just owning that and not sort of thinking it can be solved somewhere else. Any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I I think the answer is is in Doctrine and Covenants, and and it's a simple— it's the spirit and the body make up the soul. And so if you do things spiritually, you only have half the you know, half the solution. And so it's the physical and the spiritual in combination that I think makes a difference. Um, and I think what you what you do is that, You know, you do all that you can. Um, You know, you seek the diagnosis. You know, maybe it's depression because of uh, low thyroid. Maybe it's depression because um, a brain tumor. I mean, there's a lot of bad things that can happen. And so you want to know why it's there. You want to know, you know, postpartum depression is real. The biochemistry and the hormonal... uh, craziness that sometimes occurs is real um, and so I think you you look for the diagnosis and then second once the diagnosis is made then you begin if medicines are appropriate fine if not then what are the other physical elements getting adequate sleep having good I mean this this is sound like your mother taught you know the f- things I learned in kindergarten sort of moment uh, we'll say this is first grade um, you know um, you know what is um, and and not all of these are Orthodox but um, you know adequate sleep um, do you need to have um, more iron Iron is used um, by the body to carry oxygen but it's used by various other organisms or excuse me various other, um, organelles or different parts of the body. So if you have low iron, um, it is a mainstay in making dopamine, which is the pleasure hormone within the brain. So as a young woman or uh, with uh, blood loss and so forth, then iron needs to be addressed um, as part of the solution. Um, Knowing skills of how to relax and to calm oneself, the idea of mindfulness, paying attention to the present. You know, we talk about faith, hope, and charity, and faith is is something we have faith in the past and hope that that that's true. We have hope for the future, but the charity part is the present. And so medicine and religion often talk about the same ailments with simply different language. So depression is often focusing on the past, often focusing on the negative in the past. You know, I didn't, I was not uh, queen of the ball. I didn't, you know, I was not the most valuable player on my soccer team or whatever. And then the hope is the anxiousness is an anticipation disorder if we don't use it. And then the present is that charity, serving others, being kind, thinking of others. Um, other modalities, uh, adequate vitamin D, adequate exercise, um, you know, having friends to talk to. Uh, there's a whole, uh, seasonal affect disorder where you have your bedroom may be on the west side and the sunrise doesn't come up um, until hours later. If one lives along the Wasatch front and you have mountains, that projects the sunrise for another an hour later, and this seasonal affect disorder is a circadian rhythm light phenomenon. And so having light um, and these light boxes can be helpful. So there's a whole bunch of things that one can do, um, as well as uh, whatever pr- professional help that one sees.
0: Um, so it sounds like you're not ruling out spirit, I kind of made it so binary there. I think you want to not be as binary as I was. I think you want to say, you know, let open the door that Heavenly Father and the Savior can help you and the teachings of the gospel and the hope and as you're get to help you in this journey too.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that there it's an it, either or. I don't think it's binary. I think you you have this whole list of things that you can do, and that includes um again listening to good music um there's studies that talk about listening to mozart actually can decrease seizures listening to music at night can change uh, the tremor of parkinson's disease so there are these sort of things that are out there that's not necessarily mainstream but um uh, do have a scientific background that seems to make a difference and so I think you pull up on, on, uh, on those different things. I mean, I don't, I don't suggest giving yourself animas with coffee, but um, there's like the there's, way- there's there's familial reference to that, so it's not totally out of the blue. But anyway,
0: I love what you're sharing. Though is just be open to all of the things that can help you, right? And um, and some may be with things that you haven't considered exploring. And, and maybe that's also where prayer and Heavenly Father will help you to lead you to things like Mozart, as an example, that could actually, or the right therapist or a better combination of drugs through your efforts through prayer to bring better decisions in your life so you can heal. Because I think we all agree that Heavenly Father wants us to heal. Um, a couple questions. One is, as part of using heavenly father to help us heal you, you said a phrase and I don't, I wrote it down. You said, show us our dreams. Do you remember when you said that earlier? And I, were you just elaborate on that? Is that to me, is that heavenly father helping you see your future to give you hope? Um, Talk about that, Joe. Um, In my case, I think it was
1: uh, a message of soothing um, and comfort um i know other people use the term dreams in a conscious way not in a sleeping uh, sleepy moment um and that then propels them to whatever their goals are etc um the uh you know you see it and then you visualize it and then you do it sort of concept the the dreams um can be done in that way. I mean, they, they can establish a goal and then an action. that. So the concept is you work backwards. So here's your goal. And then to get to that goal, what's the very last step that's necessary to make that goal? Well, then what's the step right before that? What's the step before that and the step before that? And so by planning backwards, you're able to dissect your problem into different ways. The other thing is, in the science of complexity, there are several qualities. Um, You know, you can launch a rocket and show where it lands. That's physics of Newton. Um, But if you let a bird go, you can't predict where they will land because they are agents. And we are agents. And so what you do, you increase the probability of something happening. So you put bird food here, and so that increases the probability. It's no guarantee, but you increase the probability. And so same way in our own life, if if we do things that increase the probability, and that means you try multiple things because you're going to increase your probability with more options that you exercise than if you just try one thing. If you just try medicines, well, that doesn't that excludes all these other things that one can do to be part of that healing process. So um, you increase probability because you are an agent, um, which I think is a fascinating thought matching this whole concept of agency we have with the idea that we are agents uh, along with seagulls.
0: I love that. I love the visual. You can't predict where a bird can la- can land and just the idea that we need to take responsibility and explore everything. I think Heavenly Father has given us so many different things here on earth to help us heal and move forward, but sometimes it may take a little bit of work to find that. Talk about this experience you know, that you talked about, your feelings of suicide and the medical examiner, and um, that's about 10 years ago talk if you were to go back and talk to your um that self from 10 years ago now that you're 10 years removed what would you say if your 58 year old self 55 year old self were sitting here and you could talk to joe kramer And that's partly you just talking to people that are really close to suicide
1: um first of all i'd get really close to them and maybe touch them if, if they permit me to do that hand on the shoulder or on the on the knee, um, and I would probably cry,
2: knowing me, um,
1: just to let them know that um, that there are there are alternatives, that they are loved,
2: um, that
1: there are answers to this that go beyond simply ending it all and that there are influences that the action will have on everybody that they know and their loved ones, that they're putting their family at risk for future action. Um, And probably to say that this is not just a moment. I want to be there for you so that I'm going to do my best to Connect with you and, and call you and talk to you, and not just this be a one passing moment. Um, and that if things happen again, then this is, you can call me, and I want to do more than just wait for the call, but then call you, just check on you, just
0: see how you're doing. Why are you, what, are there other reasons why you're glad you didn't go through with your plan?
1: Oh, I've been horribly messy. I mean, goodness gracious.
0: But you had it all figured messy physically because you <laughs> had this unmessy suicide plan. I, I don't know. I assume you're not talking. Just answer more about that as we're joking well, a little bit. Um,
1: well, you know, the, with this football tra- traumatic encephalopathy, you know, the, uh, Junior Say, who is a. Uh, Polynesian outstanding linebacker for the San Diego Chargers. Uh, I think he made a point of shooting himself in the heart so that they could examine his brain to see if he had traumatic encephalopathy, and in fact, that he did. But um, uh, I, you know, part of it is, you thinking more of others, you know, instead of worrying about the medical examiner, just worry about the impact you'd have on your family. And again, it was interesting, the loyalty was to this unknown individual, although I think I I knew who was the examiner at the time. And yet I was totally oblivious to people that I did know, you know, and who did love me. But I was more worried about him than I was what my brother and sister-in-law and family would, would think. Um, but in, you know, and ultimately is, I didn't want to be the model for my family. I didn't want that to be ever thought of as an option for my kids or my grandkids, um, that there were answers. Um, I, it was interesting. My paid friend is, is, is a, friend, but my insurance pays him, um, and we spent time, well, first of all, our therapeutic sessions are talking about the current political setting, um, which we share a common feeling that uh, uh, let's just say we, we pray for America. Anyway, um, and then we talked about his suicide ideations, and how he was all ready to do it, but then he came home and there was his family. And he couldn't do it, knowing his family was there. And so it's that isolation, that loneliness that, uh, that needs to be
0: overcome. I have had a little bit of suicide training, and one of the elements of that. Is to talk to, ask people if they have a plan. I've learned that talking about all this doesn't increase. Yeah. But I, I've learned to ask people if they have a plan. I've learned to tell, have them tell me that plan. And I've learned that t- articulating a plan um, doesn't increase the likelihood they'll do it. But then I've learned to ask them, tell me what happens after the plan. Yeah. Um, and have them go through all the, if they can do it themselves without me leading it, talk about who gets notified and how does that make them feel and who, how does that all work? And there may be some people they, in the short term, they want to hurt. And it may be out of a short term desire to hurt somebody or to draw or to have them kind of wake up to your plight. Uh But I've, I think that what you did is you went past your suicide. Mm -hmm. Oh um, yeah. And you, and you thought then you have the medical examiner, but then the faces and all, and then your great analytical brain, Joe, um, recognized through some sort of training that this, this would really impact your family in a negative way. And even yeah. though there was maybe relief and all the pain and and you know and just a desire to sort of ex- leave all that pain that at times can be overwhelming, I think it's on un- you recognize the impact. And you recognize that that had the chance that other family members would model the choice you made. And um, our episode 176 for our listeners is um, Leanne Tressler, and it's the highest listens we have at maybe 20,000 or more. And um, those of you that have listened to that know her husband with, you know, died by suicide and left home seven children or and her sixteen-year-old son, two or three years later, died by suicide. And she came on the podcast and just talked about, as incredibly brave as it is, because, but she's living her worst nightmare. Yeah. Um, and she knows that her husband's suicide has impacted, obviously, her son, and this is just a great kid. I saw a picture of him. Never met him, um, but you know, I think. In mortality, her life has changed, but I would hope that, in the great plan of salvation, you know that still everything that she hopes for an eternal perspective can happen. But tremendous pain has come in, and so I like the way you recognize that, and that's I think it's helpful for our listeners that maybe, um, in that space to recognize to sort of go past what happens and all the people, you know. I just think everybody needs to know that they're loved and they're valued. And even if there's no light at the end of the tunnel, you've got to try to stay and try to do what Joe says, look for other ways to get out of this tunnel. Um, It may not be a binary tunnel where you're looking to just get out of the tunnel by one way. That's one of the things I like about Joe's setting teaching is there may be little corners of this tunnel that you may not realize there's a little turn and as you go down that turn, you're actually in a slightly different tunnel that has light and represents the hope of getting out of this space. Um, our elders quorum president, we have the same elders quorum president, Steve, and I'm a secretary in our elders quorum. He talked about our ward and and we've had Mike and Tammy Snar on the podcast from our ward. Um, but he talked about there's not a lot of um, temporal need, financial need in our ward, but he run, he speculates behind all of these homes is um, a lot of emotional illness and mental illness, but it's so stigmatized that we can't talk about it. And if I'm ministering to somebody, it would be very unlikely that they'd open up or I'd learned that. And you're obviously opening up really bravely, but somehow we need, do you have any thoughts about how to create more normal conversations around this topic at church so that if I'm ministering to somebody, Joe, and that person on the outside is kind of my hero from a career standpoint or financial standpoint, but deep, deep inside, they're really hurting. Just any thoughts on how to create conversation?
1: Well, we have one of the most wonderful, faithful home teachers, but I would never talk to him about this. I mean, this was not, you know, um, and, and that's why my point is that if I talk loud enough, perhaps people then can feel safe enough to whisper.
0: Say that. That's cool.
1: That's really cool. um, That, you know, maybe they'll be able to hear it and then they'll be able to say in their own words to someone else that that they need help. Uh, Simply changing the language from mental illness to emotional um, and talk about as emotional issues, which is, really what it is it's uh you know the brain less stigma there yeah i think so and and um i think you come back also this idea of uh, perfection i think it's interesting when you list when you read in the new testament talks about be therefore perfect when you read about it in the book of mormon it's more solicitous you know i would that you would be you know i wish you could be um and that's because he had, you know, he had gone through the wine press and he knew. And so instead of just simply, this is what the, f-, you know, you got to be uh, perfect. I wish that you were, I should, that you would be. Um, and to me, that's the message. Everyone gets hung up on this perfection stuff. And I'm... um. I had a, had the opportunity to write about this mother who is nearly perfect and how awful it was to be nearly perfect. Her children were nearly perfect. Um, and how she was not able to accept that that was okay. But that comes under the purview of security. If one feels secure, then it's okay that you know you have failings, you know you have faults. Um, and that comes back to this idea of self-talk is to, you know, say, okay, I do this. Well, I do this. Well, you know, what I just said was probably not something Einstein would have said, but you know, I'm not stupid. Um, and so you have that conversation with yourself and I think it's important to, because being nearly perfect is a horrible place to be.
0: So I love that. Um. I'm going to read a quote, then. I'm going to just see if you have anything else you want to share. This is another quote from Henry Norwin, a Catholic priest. Over the last few years, I've become increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weakness. Mostly, we are afraid of our weaknesses. We hide them at all costs, and thus they make them unavailable to others, but also unavailable to ourselves. And in this way, we end up living double lives, even against our own desires, one life in which we present ourselves to the world, to ourselves, and to God as the person who is in control, in another life in which we feel insecure, doubtful, confused, anxious, and totally out of control. The split between these two lives can cause us a lot of suffering. I have become increasingly aware of the importance of overcoming the chasm between these two lives. It is amazing in my own life that true friendship and community became possible to the degree I was able to share my weaknesses with others, just like Joe is doing. And I don't consider what Joe said as a weakness, by the way. I continue with this quote. Often I become aware of the fact that, I, that in the sharing of my weaknesses with others, the real depths of my human brokenness and weakness and sinful start to reveal themselves to me, not as a source of despair, but as a source of hope. As long as I try to convince myself or others of my independence A lot of energy is invested in building up my own false self, but once I am able to truly confess my profound dependence on others and on God, I can come in touch with my true self and real community can develop. So we'll just leave it back to you for any last comments for our listeners, Joe. Well, a
1: couple couple of things, if I may. One is that we have often in this language to ourselves, the self-talk, we have what are called ants, automatic negative thoughts, um, and they are protective words, but they are not true. And therefore, to have an antidote to each one of these negative thoughts, which may be that we maximize the problem bigger than it is, we minimize our skills and potential, we we think everything is about me, we become mean um, and using alliteration of M here, they, we become mystic. We think we know what the future is. We're mind readers. We know that they don't like us because we we can read their minds. And all of that's not true. And so to have an antidote in place when we hear these words can be helpful so that you don't have to sit and think about it, but you're able to rid yourself of of those doubts and, and questions. The, the last thing is I've discovered... Um, joy. Uh, and I don't think I have been as happy or as joyous in my life as I am now. And discovering that joy, there's, you know, the story of Adam without the knowledge is you have to have misery. They couldn't have joy because they knew no misery. And so knowing the misery um, that I've been through and others that I talked to, et cetera, as a physician, um, has provided this avenue of joy, um, and it, it is beautiful, um, and I thank Dick
0: and all those others who in my life have provided
1: that joy, so thank you.
0: Thank you, Joe, and um, we didn't get to this, but Joe continues to, in retirement, he's a part-time doctor, leaves the state of Utah for weeks at a time and goes serves in rural communities where there's less physicians. Um, but Joe, this is a podcast on hope. So thank you for creating hope for our listeners and and better tools for all of us to come together and help each other. And um, on behalf of our listeners, Joe Kramer, will you say your email one more time and then we'll sign off? Let me give you my cell phone. Yeah, it's 801 Thank you, Um, Joe, for sharing that. And um, this is Richard Osler, host of Listen, Learn, and Love, signing off. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us and sharing the podcast and leaving reviews.